0: Some of you may be aware that uh, our brother Rex Blackburn was to preach this Sunday, and uh, I spoke with Rex on Friday. He was beginning to lose his voice, and so we decided that it would be best if I would preach this Sunday, and um, we'll hopefully enjoy the privilege of hearing Rex minister the Word of God to us next Sunday. I say that for two reasons. Uh, Number one, so that you would pray for Rex, that he would recover, and uh, also last week we finished our exposition of the book of Titus. It's been my plan for the next series to be in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, But as of today, I'm not prepared to begin that series. And so this morning, I'm going to bring a topical address related to a pastoral burden. And so I just say that to say this is something of an unusual sermon. Ordinarily, there's a passage that's set before us for me to expound. Today, I'm going to preach a topical address and draw on several texts in the New Testament, especially from the Gospels. So before announcing that topic, let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come now and that you would do that work that only you can do, uh, that work that is to us unseen, that work that is to us like the wind that blows. We can't see it, but we see the effects of it. We pray that that work would take place in human hearts this morning in this place. Assist us by Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 2001, the famous American journalist Tom Brokaw published a book called The Greatest Generation. The book was about the generation of Americans who were born in the 1920s and 1930s. This generation survived the Great Depression, fought in World War II, and served to make the U.S. into one of the most prosperous nations the world has ever known. And after conducting hundreds of interviews with members of this generation, Brokaw wrote, quote, I had come to understand what this generation of Americans meant to history. It is, I believe, the greatest generation any society has ever produced. Now, after the greatest generation uh, came another great generation known as the baby boomers, or those born in the years following World War II. Uh, my grandparents would have been baby boomers. The next generation is known as Generation X, and Generation X roughly includes all those born between 1961 and 1981. The following generation is known as the millennial generation. And this generation is sometimes referred to as Generation Y, it includes all those born between 1982 and 2002. And as far as I'm aware, the millennial generation has never been accused of being the greatest generation. (laughs) In fact, many have accused millennials of being exactly the opposite. I read an article not long ago that started with these words, let's face it, millennials are the worst. An older pastor friend of mine likes to refer to millennials as the selfie generation. Um, I recently saw a satirical video on the internet promoting a fake ministry called Millennial International, which allows people to sponsor millennials so that they don't ever have to get jobs. Uh, So there's a man in the video sharing a testimonial about how he was moved to sponsor a millennial. He says this, I sat there with tears in my eyes learning about this ministry that was revolutionizing the planet. I'm talking, of course, about Millennial International. The need is enormous. There are over 10 million millennials out there who have graduated with no work ethic, no job, and no discernible skills at all, and they have expenses like housing, student loans, and credit card debt. And I didn't really realize the magnitude of the problem until I looked into the eyes of a millennial, and I saw that face with the dead, nothing is happening up there kind of thing. So I went to the booth after the service and I talked with the guy and he really informed me about the devastation that is not being able to fund a millennial lifestyle. A typical sponsorship program costs $29 a month, millennial international costs $2,900 a month. Yes, it seems expensive at first, but when you see the need, it is totally worth it. One of the beneficiaries of the program is a millennial named Declan. Declan is from Beverly Hills and is an aspiring photographer with an art degree. He says, I've been getting blue ribbons and participation trophies my whole life. For me, if it wasn't for the program, I'd have to get a job, or worse, start a GoFundMe page. Uh, Tragically, I'm afraid the millennial generation will never be regarded as the greatest generation. Already. The millennial generation is considered to be uh, probably the most lazy, passive, indecisive and entitled generation in American history. Now before you say, man, Pastor Alex, that's being a little harsh, I have a confession to make and that is that I too am a millennial. And so I criticize millennials as an insider. But all joking aside, what has become of the millennial generation is indeed a tragedy. I said that millennials are those born between 1982 and 2002. If you were born after 2002, you are part of what's called Generation Z. The story of Generation Z has not been written yet, and this is a generation that is just now coming of age, and the first ones are being sent off to college. I wonder what the history books will write about Generation Z. Well, I'm not especially interested in what is written about millennials or about Generation Z, I'm most interested in you and I'm interested in your lives and your souls and what will be said about you. So I'd like to speak to you this morning on being a decisive generation for Christ. And what I'd like to preach this morning has special bearing on the young people who are here this morning. Young people, I understand that the pandemic uh, that's going on now, of all the different groups and people this has affected, um, it's affected you in a special way, in an unusual way. Uh, These are pivotal years. And I know that 2020 has not gone the way you had planned, the way you had hoped. I'm sure your summer break was not what you wanted it to be. And I'm sure school is uh, presenting all sorts of challenges and inconveniences right now. But could it be that one of the things God is doing for you in 2020? is getting your attention in a most unusual and unexpected way, and so I'd like to speak to you about four decisions you can make that will define your life and change your life forever. And so I'd like to speak especially to the young people this morning, but what I say would have bearing on everyone who is gathered to sit under the preaching of the word this morning. So this is what I'd wish to do. The Bible at many points calls men and women to decision, to action, I'd like to call our attention to four decisions the Bible calls us to. Starting with number one, young people, decide that you will repent and turn from your sin. Decide that you will repent and turn from your sin. Now we speak often around here of what we call the gospel. Uh, The gospel is principally news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news about what God has done in Christ, His only Son, to make a way of salvation for sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the good news, and it is this news by which sinners are saved. But the gospel is more than the announcement of of information or historical events that have taken place in time. The gospel contains, along with it, what we could call a summons or an invitation, or a calling, the gospel summons sinners to repent of sin and to believe on Jesus. All who hear the gospel are summoned by God to repentance, and this was universally taught by the preachers of the New Testament. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, we read, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A few verses on in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus, this was the preaching of the apostles as well. The apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 as he's addressing thousands on the day of Pentecost, we read this of the audience that sat under his preaching. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in a number of places, in Acts and in the epistles, the apostle Paul proclaims this same message. In Acts 17, verse 30, we read, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance and faith are reckoned to be matters of duty and personal responsibility by God's direct command, and hence impenitence and unbelief are rendered to be grievous sins for which men and women will be judged. And of course, wonderfully, these commands come with spectacular promises of salvation to all those who obey them. Acts 10, verse 43, we read, through Jesus' name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, this is the promise, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These words are promises which God will be faithful to uphold for all those who claim them, for all those who come to Him in repentance and faith. Now, if you're to decide, as I'm encouraging you, as I'm asking you, as I'm urging you, if you're to decide to repent and believe, you have to know what it is we're talking about with these two ideas. So, I'm going to enlist the help of a man named J.I. Packer, a theologian who recently passed away. He says this, it needs to be said that faith is not a mere optimistic feeling any more than repentance is a mere regretful or remorseful feeling. Faith and repentance are both acts and acts of the whole man. Faith is essentially the casting and resting of oneself and one's confidence on the promises of mercy which Christ has given to sinners and on the Christ who gave those promises. Equally, now listen to this, repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance It's an actual change of mind and heart, a new life of denying self and serving the Savior as King in self's place. Now, of course, for one to repent and turn from sin, he or she must see themselves as a sinner. If you're to repent of sin, you have to see yourself, right, as a sinner. And so I ask you, do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as a sinner living in a fallen world? When you look around at the world, do you see this world as fundamentally fallen and sinful and broken? And there's never been a time, I think, in my lifetime where that argument has been any easier. And just be honest with yourself, young people. As you look around at your peers, as you look around at current events, as you look around at this world, is this a fundamentally whole and happy place? Or do we live in a world that is deeply affected by sin, a world that is fallen, a world that is dark. What do you see when you look at the world? I don't think I need to argue that you, to, to, to you that you see in the world the most convincing proof that we do indeed live in a fallen and sinful world. But the most convincing proof I would argue that I can submit to you is if you were to look inward at your own heart. Just examine yourself and be honest with yourself. Before the Lord, sitting where you are in this moment, do you know yourself to be a sinner? What do you see emerging from your heart in the quiet and unguarded moments? Do you find your instincts, your inclinations, your very nature to be fundamentally good and upright and holy? Or do you know yourself deep down in your heart, deep down in the deepest recesses of your soul, to be a sinner? And more than that, a sinner who is answerable to a just and holy God. Do you see yourself in that dilemma? One who is covered in sin through your sin nature and through willful rebellion against God. And do you see yourself as being accountable, as being answerable to a God who is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and perfectly righteous? And are you aware... Of what the Scriptures say about all those who reject the gospel and die in their sin, it is that they will address the eternal punishment that God has consigned for them in hell for all eternity. That is the inheritance of those who die outside of Christ, those who die in their sins and never repent, never turn from their sin and believe upon God. And I'm concerned that for some of us It may be true that we know the world is broken, we know the world is fallen, and if we're being honest with ourselves, we know ourselves to be sinners, but some of us, perhaps, have not truly looked in the face the danger that is awaiting us in our current state as sinners outside the grace of God. When I was five years old, it's one of my most vivid memories as a small kid, Uh, the house that I grew up in burned to the ground. And so there I was in my room, it's maybe 2 in the morning or something like that, and my older brother comes in and he shakes me to wake me up, and he says, hey, we got to go, we got to get out of here. And so I, I pop up out of bed, I sit up, I look around, I, I don't see anything, see my room, you know, nothing's going on, and he kind of runs, runs off, and so I didn't see any danger, didn't see anything, and so I just laid back down and fell back asleep. And next thing I know, my mother comes in, wrenching me out of the bed and pulls me into the hallway, and there I saw the hallway consumed with flames, a fire that had started in the garage spread to the rest of the house, and our house literally burned to the ground. And once I saw those flames, I sped out of that house, I fled out of that house into the arms of my dad who carried me to safety. I had to see the danger that I was in. Before I was alerted to the need to flee what was coming. That picture is a fit picture for the state of every soul who is outside of Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you are a sinner in a burning house that one day is going to collapse on you. The flames of sin, the flames of the just wrath of God that you deserve as a rebel against the will of God. One day, that house will collapse and one of the scariest things about that scenario is that the effects will be irreversible. By that time, it will be too late. Young people, do you see the danger that you are in as sinners outside of the grace of God? Do you see yourself as being in that burning building in need of escape? If you know yourself to be a sinner? And if you assess the just wrath of God that is due towards sin, I urge you, I call you to decide to repent and turn from your sin. To have done with sin, to leave off sinning, to take not a moment longer. Don't put this off until you're 15 or 17 or 21 after you've had your fill of sinful self-indulgence. The day of salvation is today. We don't know the day or the hour and you don't know that the Lord may not demand your soul this very afternoon. And so I urge you with the most impossible sense of urgency to choose to decide this day I'm going to turn from my sin. Enough is enough. I'm going to have done with my sinful ways and I'm going to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Decide my friend that you will turn and repent of your sins. The second decision I would like to call you to decide that you will repent and turn from your sins. Secondly, decide that you will follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Decide that you will follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Now, I don't mean to indicate you can do the first decision without the second one. These go together. The gospel is not a call only to repent and turn from sin. It is a call to place one's faith in Christ and to devote one's life to following him the gospel call is a call to come and to be the Lord's disciple. The gospel calls us into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a call to follow Jesus as one's master, one's shepherd, one's teacher, and one's Lord. We have repeated again and again in the gospel accounts those key words, follow me. Follow me. Those words represent a call to decision a call to action, a call to allegiance and devotion. Those words, follow me, capture something foundational to what it is we are called to in the gospel. And so Jesus says to Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4, verse 19, he said to them, follow me. In Matthew 9, verse 9, we read Matthew was sitting at the tax booth and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. In John 1, verse 43, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me again and again and again. These words are repeated to those who Jesus is calling into relationship with him. He is inviting sinners to become disciples, to become followers of the master, the teacher, the Lord. And on many occasions, the Lord opened up what it actually means, what it entails to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. One such text is found in Matthew 16 in verses 24 through 26. You can just listen as I read. I trust this passage is familiar to many of you. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, listen to these decisions, these actions of the will that Jesus calls these people to. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? But follow me, Jesus says. Take up your cross, he says. Give up your life, young people, so you can truly find your life. Deny yourself so that you might save yourself by the grace of God. You see, to a generation that is indecisive, Jesus says, follow me. To a culture that fears commitment, Jesus says, be my disciple. To young people who don't want to do hard things, Jesus says, take up your cross. To a generation that can't decide what it wants, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus calls each one of us to follow him. So I ask you, each one of us here, will you decide to follow Jesus Christ as his disciple? To be sure you will follow someone or something. When I was a kid, it was popular to say, it was like encouraged for young people to think this way, you were to say, I'm a leader, not a follower. I'm a leader, not a follower. Statement's a bunch of bunk. We're all following someone or something. Some of you are following your peers, you're following authority figures, you're following the shifting winds and trends of culture, you're following your own sinful desires, your own inclinations. We're all following someone or something, all of us are followers. Who are you following? What are you following? That is the question, I call on you today to decide to follow Jesus, I want to warmly commend to you following Jesus to encourage you as to what a life following Jesus is like the life of following Jesus is a life of joyful obedience to him in which we are meant to flourish and prosper under the care of a gracious savior and master this is his invitation In Matthew 11, verse 29, he invites sinners, those who are broken and burdened by sin, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is the master holding out to you if you would follow him? Rest for your souls. Rest for the weary and for the heavy laden, for the broken and the burdened. In another passage, John 15, verse 9, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. What is it like to be Jesus' disciple? Well, it's to abide in his love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You catch that? Rest for the weary soul. Abiding in the love of Christ. Life and joy for those who follow after Jesus. This is what it means to follow the Lord. It's not the life of a miserable slave. It is not the life of scarcity and austerity and want. It is not a life of sorrow and fear. It is a life of joy in service to the Lord of all creation and to the shepherd of our souls. It is a life of following the one who promises us abundance of life and joy and who will finally give us paradise with him forever. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Young people, I encourage you. To decide to follow Christ as his disciple. Decide that you will pursue a life of joyful obedience to him. Find your joy in Jesus. Commit that you will serve and obey him all the days of your life. Seek now to cultivate spiritual disciplines and habits of life and patterns of thought that will accommodate a life of loving and joyful obedience to Christ. And may God be pleased to give to this generation of our church, a generation of Christ's followers who will choose joy and satisfaction in Christ over the passing pleasures of this world. Oh, for young men who choose to forsake immorality and lust for a higher and greater and sweeter pleasure and joy that they have found in Jesus Christ. For young women who say no to the idols of vanity and self-love because they have found a deeper satisfaction and joy in the Lord of all creation. May God give to us a generation of those who will follow hard after Christ, who will give themselves to serving the Lord Jesus Christ and finding delight and satisfaction and joy in service to him. Young people, I urge you, decide to become the Lord's disciple. And having decided to follow him, decide that you will pursue a life of joyful obedience to him all the days of your life. A third decision. I'd like to encourage on all of us, decide that you will repent and turn from your sin. Decide that you will follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And thirdly, don't leave this out. This is so important. Decide to identify publicly with Christ and His church. Decide to identify publicly with Christ and His church. In the early days of the church, it was expected that those who repented of sin and followed Jesus would be baptized publicly. Peter told the crowds in Acts 2 that they were to repent and be baptized. And as we read on, we learn that those who were baptized were added to the church and began devoting themselves to the life of the church. One's Christianity was never understood to be a private matter. Don't listen to the way our culture talks about this today because it's wildly deceptive. Your faith is not a private matter. The implications of Christian faith are entirely public for the world to see. They have implications for your neighbors and everyone around you. Your faith, your religion, your spirituality, whatever you want to call it, is not a private matter. It is never understood to be that way in the Bible. Your faith is a public matter designed to be proclaimed and pronounced in the sight of all. To become a Christian in those early days was to make a stand. It was to align oneself with Jesus of Nazareth, who, by the way, was not all that popular in the surrounding culture. I say that because I think we've now passed the point where an attachment to Jesus in the American South brings with it sort of social cachet. Young people, in the days ahead, I assure you, you're not going to gain anything in terms of social status by identifying with Jesus and his church. It's going to get a lot harder before it gets better when Jesus comes back. Well, you will have brothers and sisters in the pages of the New Testament who can sympathize with you. They identified publicly with Jesus when it was considered shameful to do so. We too are to identify publicly with Jesus of Nazareth. So the first thing to say... It's to the Christian young people here and the Christian older people here. Make sure your friends and your peers know that you're a Christian. Stand up for Jesus and identify yourself publicly with Christ. But now, this also is of tremendous importance. If you are to identify with Christ, you must align yourself with his people namely the church. You get that, right? The the Bible will not condone the attitude that says, well, I'm fine with Jesus, it's just all the Christians I can't stand. I'm good with him, but not into the whole organized religion thing, not into the whole organized church thing. That is not an attitude the Bible will sanction. Now, I know, right, in this day and age, What could be more constraining? What could be more boring? What could be more bland? What could be more passe than the church, right? Listen to me, the church is said to be the bride of Christ. The church is said to be Christ's own body. The church is said to be the house where God himself dwells by his spirit. The church is Christ's plan A for advancing his cause throughout the world and there is no plan B. The Lord never has plan Bs. The church is where it's at. Christ makes promises to his church that he never makes to lone, maverick Christians. He makes promises to his church that he never makes to parachurch organizations. Christ makes promises to his church that he never makes to campus ministries. Christ makes promises to his church that he never makes to Christian schools. High school juniors and seniors. College students who are here, I'm going to give you some of the most important advice you can be given at this stage of your life. When it comes time for you to go to college, and some of you I know are already there, before you join a campus ministry, before you sign up for intramural sports, before you join any clubs, you find a church and you join it. And if you have to make a choice between church or FCA, you choose the church. And if you have to choose between the church and ultimate frisbee, you choose the church. And if you have to choose between the church and your government club, you choose the church. Because listen to me, when the parachurch ministries are gone, when the various extracurriculars are over and done with, when your college friends are nothing but a distant memory, the church will still be And listen to me, when whatever organization or institution that seems so important to you right now is long gone, the church will still be there. Long after current cultural trends have run their course, long after the Republican and Democratic parties are gone, long after the United States is a thing of the past, long after you or me or even our grandchildren are gone, the church will still be standing and Christ will be at her head nourishing her and cherishing her as his own body. Charles Spurgeon said the the world is all scaffolding, the church is the true building. Young people if you give yourself to the church you give yourself to something that matters. Don't waste your life giving your time, your energy to ephemeral trivial things. If you give yourself to the bride of Christ, to Christ's own body you will live a life that matters and a life that counts for eternity. Wherever you go on God's green earth, prioritize an attachment to the local church, because it is the church that is God's plan A for advancing his purposes in the world. Decide that you will repent and turn from your sin. Decide that you will follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Decide to identify publicly with Christ and his church, and fourthly and finally, and in closing. Young people, decide that you will do something for Christ. Very simply, decide that you will do something for Jesus with your life. You are given just one life. The scriptures in one place say that all we have is 70 years, if by some strength we might reach 80. And in our day, some people might get a little bit more than that. But you just got one life. The Bible describes it variously as a breath, as vapor. If you stand outside in the winter and you you breathe, at most you might get two seconds with that breath as it drifts. You have a two second little life. What are you going to do with it that matters? What are you going to give yourself to? What are you gonna give your time and your energy to? You know, the Bible says, the Lord says, to whom much is given, much will be required. My friend, what haven't you been given? We have some young people here with some extraordinary gifts, extraordinary talents, extraordinary blessings that God has given to you. To whom much is given, much will be required. What are you going to do with your life? Are you going to invest your life in serving King Jesus and giving him your all and devoting your time, your energy, your gifts, to the service of Christ and his kingdom? Or are you gonna fritter your life away on useless distractions? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everyone here needs to become a missionary, though some of you should. I'm not saying that everyone here needs to become a preacher, though some of you should. There are all sorts of ways you can live a life that counts in eternity. Give your life and energy to serving other people than yourself. Give your life to discipling people in the context of the local church. Give your life, if you want, to make lots of money and to steward resources that you can funnel into the kingdom of God to advance His cause throughout the world. But give your life to doing something for Jesus. We hear a lot of talk nowadays, right? Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. And of course, that conversation can be very enlightening, right? Let me tell you about the kind of life that surely won't matter. It is the kind of life that will be lived in sinful self-indulgence, the kind of life serving sin, the kind of life serving self, the kind of life that is devoted to what is ephemeral and trivial and trite and fleeting. And that kind of life will accrue eternal punishment throughout all eternity. That life weighed in the balance will count for nothing. So I urge you, having repented from sin, having followed after Christ, having devoted yourself to Christ and His church, live for Jesus and burn out for Him. Give your time and your energy and your days doing things that matter, serving His kingdom and giving your all in service to Him in such a way that you will have no cause to be ashamed when you appear before the bar of Christ. I talk very often to older folks who uh, have have come to faith, maybe at a later stage in life, and one of the things you often have to help them through is the crippling regret of a life wasted. And wonderfully, the Lord is pleased to, to repair those years that the moths have eaten away and to redeem them, but young people, I don't want you to get to your dying day with nothing but regrets. Commit now, determine now, I'm gonna burn out for Christ. I'm gonna give my all and everything I've got in service to him, invest everything you've got. That's a life worth living, and that is a life that will echo in eternity. That's a life that will matter. That's a life that will accrue everlasting blessing. A life like that doesn't save you, it's only the blood of Jesus that saves you. But you should be thinking about this, but, but now what? I've come to faith in Christ, I'm his disciple, what will I do to serve and honor the Lord? And that is a question that should be put to each one of us. What am I living for? What justification can I give for my existence, for my days, for my time? What am I doing that matters and is of lasting significance? May God help us and give us wisdom and direction and how to apply the graces and gifts he's given us to serve him and his kingdom friends, decide to repent and turn from sin. Decide to follow the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Decide to identify publicly with Christ and his church. Decide to do something for Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are called in your word to decision. We are called to action. I sought to urge certain decisions on us this morning, but now I pray that you would do that work that only you can do of granting new birth and regeneration, granting a change of will and of mind that we can even make these sorts of decisions. While enslaved to sin, lost in sin, we are deaf and blind to these urgings and pleadings. But would you do the work sovereignly now that you alone can do? Change us and incline our wills to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.